Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 92. Hey, this is Z-Dog MD, rapper, physician, legendary turntable health revolutionary, and part-time gardener. And you're listening to the Medical School HQ Podcast, hosted by the irredeemably awesome Ryan Gray. Hello, and welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Ryan Gray. And I believe that competition amongst your pre-med and medical student peers is detrimental to becoming a great physician. In this podcast, we show you how collaboration, hard work, and honesty are critical to becoming a superior physician in today's healthcare environment. Hi, Allison. Hello, Ryan Gray. If you haven't heard Allison yet on this podcast, if you're a new listener, welcome. Thank you for joining us. If you're an old listener, you know Allison, and some of you have even written to us saying that I should let Allison on the podcast more. I love that terminology, let me on. I know, like but that's... Like, I'm like, you know, a little puppy out in the doghouse, you have to let out. <laughs> but that's that's what they wrote. It's And it's yeah, not like yeah. I prevent you from coming on, it's just... It's true. Well, I, gotta go. I have a lot going on, and you know... We're busy. Yeah. It's okay. I would love to be on every week, but I personally also think that it's nice for our audience to hear from all of these great guests that we have. Yeah, I think I think you listening benefit more from guests getting a, a wide variety of experiences and expertise than just hearing Allison and and uh, me talk all the time. So that's what we do. <laughs> it's nice to have you here, though. Well, thanks, and I always enjoy being on. What are we talking about today? We're talking about my first year in private practice. Yeah, you just passed your kind of one year anniversary or work work anniversary. <laughs> work anniversary, I did. Good. I did. Yeah. So right. we're talking about what did I? What were the best things, the worst things, the things I wish I'd known, and and really with a, um, a focus on you, the pre med student, and you, the medical student, because we could focus this toward uh, or gear this rather toward residents who are graduating. But we think that there are a lot of things that you uh, you might actually benefit from earlier on in your path. So we'll dig into it. Yeah. Before we get into that, let's talk about our new Facebook group. So if you go to medicalschoolhq.net slash group, that will take you to a new somewhat private. It's closed at this point. I don't know if I'll open it up, but it's a closed Facebook group. It's just called the Medical School Headquarters Hangout. And it's it's different than our academy. We have our academy Facebook group that's specifically for our academy members who 
uh, are, are part of our academy getting pre-med advising from us. The This new Hangout is for listeners of the podcast to get together, to share their thoughts on the podcast, to to collaborate like I like we talk about at the beginning of the show about collaboration and hard work. This is just a different form for you guys to get together and to hang out and talk and it lets us distribute information to to you the listener a little bit easier as well. Yeah, and maybe you'll build relationships, friendships, colleagues. Yeah. So medicalschoolhq.net/group Click on join this group and we'll we'll accept you as as soon as we see all of them. So hopefully we'll see you in there. Looking forward to it. Also, this is session ninety two. We are wow. we are eight weeks away from session one hundred. Wow. <laughs> you never thought we'd make it this far, did you? Wow. <laughs> no, I that's not true. I know you, Ryan Gray, and I know that you're very determined and very passionate and yeah. Who said? I never said that you wouldn't make it this far. Okay, now be honest. Did you think we would make it to 100? Okay, I'll tell you what I did not think. I did not think that you would be able to go every single week until episode 100 almost without skipping a week. That is impressive. Especially with a baby and... Yeah, and a full-time job and and everything. Yeah. Anyway, so. so for session 100, a couple episodes ago, we'd asked for some ideas. And Jessica, one of our Academy members, emailed me recently and said this is what this is my idea and she recommended and and I loved it and so did Allison that we get you the the listener to email us your stories your hardships your struggles and and give us your story about how how you overcame those struggles and and where you are on your path and mention to us maybe possibly what what podcast episode that we did out of the hundred maybe helped you on that path and and helped you overcome those struggles and with those we'll take the top five or ten depending on how long they might turn out to be and turn those in into some audio clips and we'll um, gather all those and, and make a podcast episode out of it. Yeah, and I think it will be really beneficial for a lot of people out there. One of Jessica's points, which I completely agree with, is that people really benefit from hearing what other people have struggled with and have overcome. And I think uh, clearly on the road to becoming a physician, there are many hurdles, many obstacles, and there are so many different paths that people take uh, to get to becoming physicians. And so hearing about similar struggles that others may have had or what things might lie in front of you that you're not even aware of and how people surmounted those obstacles. I think that would Just be... knowing that other people are struggling yeah, with you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it, it'll be great. We're really excited about it. So, so yay, Jessica. You know what Jessica's struggling with right now? Uh, secondaries or interviews? No, the, the 405. The 405. The freeway. Oh, God. <laughs> Hi, Jessica. What are you talking about? The four. I'm trying to think. Like, is this some kind of FAFSA, like financial aid document? No. That, no. It's, a, it's an ins- California inside job. Well, see, I'm from Ohio, yeah. technically, yeah. but really Boston. Anyway. So, all right. So, thank you, Jessica, for that idea. See, all if you'd right. said the Pike, I would have totally understood. Anyway, contact us through our contact page, medicalschoolhq.net/slash/contact. Let's get into this. All right. So, as you. Past your work anniversary, you you graduated your residency in June of 2013. Yep, and it's now August of 2014. You've been in private practice now for 
a year and almost two months. Correct. And I was out on maternity leave for 13 weeks, but yep. yes. So about a year about you've been year. working. Mm-hmm. That has given you enough time now to reflect upon where you've been and where you're at now and kind of where you're going. And I want to I want to have the conversation. I'll kind of lead you through this interview and talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. And, and again, as you said, we want to frame this for a pre-med student, a medical student, and maybe even a resident to to what they should start thinking about now, uh, even before they, they're thinking about work in private practice or work as an attending. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, about, let's talk about the good stuff first. All right. So what are some of the highlights from this first year uh, working in private practice? So to give everyone a little bit of background, to give you all Uh, just a bit on what I am doing. So I graduated from the, if you don't know me or haven't heard from me before, I graduated from the Harvard Neurology Residency Program in June of 2013, as Ryan said, and it was a combined program through Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I, uh, after graduating, we took a trip to Hawaii, yay. But then after we got back, um, we, I, I started, I started my job and I am an attending physician I work at uh, a private practice out in west of Boston, and uh, I'm affiliated with a nearby hospital, um, So, which is an academic teaching hospital. Most of my time, probably 90% of my time, I, I haven't done the math on this, but um, 80 to 90% um, of my time is spent in outpatient practice. The other 10 to 15% of my time is spent doing inpatient and emergency room consults at the nearby academic teaching hospital. It's fi- 15% in the hospital. Is it? Yeah. Eight weeks out of 52. Oh, good job. Okay, so someone did the math. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> All right, so 85%, 15%. Uh, when I'm in the hospital, I'm seeing patients acutely. I have to be in the hospital within 15 minutes when the stroke pager goes off. If I'm in the shower with soap in my hair, I still have to be there in 15 minutes. It's a good thing we live so close to the hospital. But anyway, I see patients um, for acute stroke calls. And uh, I see patients for all sorts of other reasons in the emergency department, whether it's seizures or horrible migraines or whatever it may be. And uh, I also see inpatient consults. So I will see patients who've already been admitted to the hospital or who are going to be admitted to the hospital with a series of different neurological issues. And I will go in and see them every day. Uh, for we, we take call for about a week at a time. Different practices do different things. And that's one thing definitely to look into before you join any sort of practice as an attending. Find out what the call schedule and call coverage is like. But for me... Uh, I share call with uh, several different uh, physicians, um, and I when I'm there, I'm I'm the neurologist. So for anything neurological at this hospital, it comes to me, which is a big job. Yeah. Um, my outpatient time, though, uh, which is what I do the majority of the time, uh, is spent seeing patients with a range of different neurological issues. I see folks for uh, with general neurological issues, and again, that could mean stroke, seizure, migraine. Uh, not really brain tumors because if someone is diagnosed with a brain tumor, then they, I send them on to a neuro-oncologist for management. I see patients with um, 
all sorts of things, peripheral neuropathy, uh, spinal cord issues, multiple sclerosis. So uh, I'll see them and, and then I'll see them ongoingly. Uh, Ryan always tells me that's not a word, but the point is that I'll see someone and then I'll continue to follow them often, uh, which has been great. So that leads me to my one of the best things about this year, which has been uh, establishing relationships with patients. So one of the things that was really exciting to me when I was trying to decide what specialty to pursue, I really wanted to become the type of physician who would develop relationships with her patients. Uh, I really, I, the thrill of the emergency room is great on the one hand, but for me, what was missing about that is you see them once and then you never see them again, or maybe yeah. you see them again. But And, and some people love that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some people thrive on that or, or being an intensivist, you see someone acutely when they're sick in the hospital and then hopefully never again. Yeah. Um, for me, I really, really, you know, I loved, like when I was a kid, it was so, so nice to see my primary care physician every year. I I really liked the idea that you could form a relationship with your patient and really become someone that they trusted and, and, uh, someone who took care of them. So that for me has been one of the most, um, rewarding parts of this year that I've really, uh, I really have now my, my patient group and I'm, I'm always seeing new patients, but I, I love seeing my follow-up patients following people. We, we talk about other things besides medicine and neurology. We talk about, you know, how, how is your family and people know I was out and, uh, on maternity leave and they ask about how, um, my baby is doing and we look at pictures. It's, you know, life stuff. So I've loved that. That's been one of my favorite things. Yeah. And, and I'll jump in and just piggyback i know this is your talk here but that's probably one of the biggest things for me as well is those relationships yeah and i know you've talked about that too i I know we see very different patient populations but i think for a lot of physicians they really they really enjoy that yeah and again that comes down to knowing you Mm -hmm. knowing what you want Uh, and as i said i've talked to many who are in or our emergency department physicians now, emergency medicine physicians, and they love the lack of continuity. They love seeing a person once and then never seeing them again. Although in today's day and age, the emergency room has kind of turned into Yeah, it's kind of a revolving door in some ways. But I would, I mean, there are good and bad sides to everything. So if you do have a patient who is particularly challenging, and we all have um, patients who can be more challenging for different reasons, um, that it, you don't it's hard just, to shake them right <laughs> to be yeah um i mean you can't you can discharge a patient from a hospital or from an emergency room it, to discharge a patient from your practice is a very different animal yeah all right so that's the thing you've liked the most is there anything else that you that you've liked about well, just sort of uh, relate very closely related to that, I would say seeing how things evolve. So one of the things that you don't really get to do as uh, a, a pre-medical student, a medical student, even a resident is really see how things evolve. And I, I mean by that, how a person who has a certain neurological or medical illness, how that disease evolves, how the person who has that disease changes over time. It's been very interesting and eye-opening to me to see uh, what happens with people and to really follow them. And mm. uh, I always look forward to that when I was uh, earlier on in my training. And it's always something that you sort of like you really wish you got to do like, oh, you just diagnosed this new condition in this person and you want to see what happens to them, but you don't ever get that opportunity. A lot of, you know, maybe you'll see them a few months later when they come to you for follow-up in the clinic, but it's so hard as a, a medical student and a resident to really follow people. So yeah. um, seeing that, how th- th- things evolve is really and that, that depends. 
depends on what type of residency you're doing as well. If you're doing a family practice residency where most of your work is is going to be in an outpatient clinic, you might see the same people in, over and over again. So. That is very true. It really does depend. But the, a lot of residencies are going to be inpatient-based, and it's going to be a, a lot of revolving patients um, because hopefully the inpatients are being discharged home. Yeah, correct. And And that what you're talking about... So you can see a patient on day one, give them a medication, and then see them a couple weeks later, and they can say, you know what, the medication makes me feel great or it makes me feel worse. You can see responses. You don't typically get to see that as an inpatient physician or a resident or, or whatever you're doing because you're prescribing and then sending home. Absolutely. Or follow up in the community. Without a doubt. So as a resident or a medical student, I think that you're relying on what you've been taught by your by those who are ahead of you, meaning uh, your senior residents, your attendings, your fellows. Um, when you're out in practice, you're, well, and also I should say when you're in your training, you're learning through books, obviously, and, and through the literature. When you're out in practice, you're learning. <laughs> oh, isn't it Wikipedia? Oh, jeez. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> when you're out in practice, uh, not only are you learning through uh, what's in the literature and what's evidence-based, but you actually, what's so cool is you get to build your own anecdotal sort of evidence you you learn through your patient population just as you said ryan what works what doesn't and it's real time and that's what's really neat about that so so that's been great um and i just want to add one more i know you told me the best thing but there really have been a lot of great things the last thing i would say is one of the things um that's been so rewarding for me is is establishing relationships working relationships with the primary care physicians in the community who refer patients to me what you don't recognize, what I didn't recognize as um, a medical student and, and certainly not as a resident is the importance of those relationships that uh, you just, you think, okay, well, when I go to become a doctor, I'm just going to start and then patients will show up at my door. It doesn't work like that, right? You're, you're not an island. <laughs> no. And, and you don't really have the time or the, and it's not really appropriate to go stand out on the street with a big sign that says, please come see me for the following conditions. <laughs> will work for... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Proper ICD nine. Yeah, code. exactly. It's not really appropriate, and I and I'm not kidding. I mean, physicians do struggle with building up their patient base, yep. um, but it's been so nice for me to to form these relationships with primary care physicians to have that dialogue going back when someone says, "I I'd love you to see this person," or or someone shows up and I know the physician by name, the primary care physician, because I've worked with them and we have we share a lot of mutual patients and and we've talked over the phone and and worked out things together. I I just have really um, loved that and, and find that really, really uh, rewarding. And I've learned so much from those primary care physicians, and I, I hope that I've done a good job in, in helping them with their, their patients too. So that all goes back to collaboration, oh, absolutely. teamwork, mm -hmm. everything that we harp upon that you should be building these skills as pre-meds and medical students and residents the, the relationships that you're going to need to be able to form as attending physicians is what's going to drive your business. If, if you piss off another attending who's, who's a, an internist that may be referring to specialists, in, in your case, you're a neurologist, so these internists are, are going to need to refer patients to neurologists if you're not a good team player, if you don't collaborate well, if you don't communicate well, if you don't communicate yeah. well, you are not going to get those referrals. Right. And and I think and certainly you're not going to be helping anyone out. Um, yeah. Now, ultimately, it comes down to the patient care. Absolutely. So. Yeah. 
Good. One thing too on that note, Ryan, is um, the whole concept of a second opinion. So some people get really scared about that, that, oh, my patient, you know, as an attending, oh, my patient's going elsewhere to, to get another opinion. I encourage that, quite frankly, because I think... Uh, for two reasons, like you said, collaboration. So it's another brain thinking about the problem. And and I think for a lot of patients, it can be reassuring. Let's say you've given someone a really, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? An unfortunate diagnosis. Let's say you've diagnosed someone with, uh, with Alzheimer's dementia, and maybe they don't feel or their family feels very conflicted about that and, and is not sure that that's really the case. And you know, sending someone out for a second opinion can provide reassurance for that person that you are doing the right things by them and that you have thought about it properly. And so I encourage people to do that. And, and I think like if, you know, certainly that I could learn from that individual. So I've had people go for second opinions and then they come back and they say, okay, well, I feel better knowing now that, that both of you are on the same page and, and maybe I'll learn something from that other provider. Yeah. Good. All right. So lots of good stuff. And lots I'm sure, of there's, great stuff. I'm sure yeah. there's plenty more. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about what you've struggled with during this first year. All right. So probably, and this may be sort of straightforward, but uh, because it was my first year out in practice, the lack of experience is probably the most obvious and, and certainly rings true. Anytime you start uh, the first time, if you think back when you're a pre-med student, you're your first pre-med course, uh, if you think as a medical student, your first, like your anatomy course, your anatomy lab, your uh, your first time on the wards, uh, as a resident, that first day of intern year, I mean, those are all scary times. Your so. first love. <laughs> That's totally different. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you were talking um, about first and I'm... <laughs> well, hopefully you're not like terrified the first time you meet your, the love of your life. Anyway, um, we digress. No, so the lack of experience. The I will say the first day that I showed up at my practice, I was not terrified. I did not have that sort of feeling in the pit of my stomach. But I, I'm going to interrupt you. But that's because you knew this person that had hired you. That's was, very true. He was your mentor. Mm-hmm. You kind of knew some of the other people at the office. Oh, 100%. So I was just about to say that, that I had a slightly different situation in that uh, I did know a lot of the people whom I was going to be working with. Uh, and so, yeah, in other circumstances, I might've been scared, silly. One of my, uh, mentors, one of the attendings whom I had worked with at Brigham and women's told me that, uh, when he years and years ago, when he first became an attending, the same consult that took him 15 minutes as a senior resident the day before come July 1st, it took him like an hour and a half because he was just so nervous because he didn't want to miss anything. I mean, here he is, he's an attending now. So I think that, that's what I'm saying that when you first start out, you're an attending. Uh, now I had a lot of, uh, mentorship along the way, which was wonderful. And I, I think that's so great if you're able to, to join a practice where, you know, some folks, because that mentorship is, is so helpful in so many ways, but still, I mean, there've been plenty of days when along the way, when I was, uh, at the practice seeing patients and, and maybe I didn't know, uh, exactly what I needed to know at the time. And I had to figure it out. And and that's part of, I, I think as a pre-med and a medical student, as a resident, we need to always be uh, determined and sort of, um, you know, to just launch yourself forward and jump in and figure out what you need to figure out, use your resources. There's a, there's a lot, you know, it's that whole teamwork thing you talk about, Ryan, you know, don't go out there and decide, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm an attending now and I'm going to just do it on my own. It doesn't, that's not gonna, I mean, maybe you can make that work, but 
I don't think that that really is a good recipe for success. So, uh, but the lack of experience can be hard. You know, you, you have people coming to see you and you're an attending now. It's your name, you know, and it's you your want, license. Yeah. It's your license. It's your butt on the line. It's all those things. So, yeah. um, there's a, there's a little bit of uncomfortableness, if you will, in knowing that you don't know everything. But for God's sakes, if you thought that after you graduated residency, you knew everything, that there's something very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or you had an awesome residency. Well, fine. But the whole point is that we're supposed to be lifelong learners. Yes, so that's true. All right. So lack of experience. Mm-hmm. And that will only get better, right? Yeah. Hopefully. What else? I think for me, just in the nature of where I am, and this will probably ring true for uh, many people who become attendings who work in both an inpatient and outpatient uh practice. I found balancing my inpatient and outpatient responsibilities somewhat challenging. Uh, also because I was pregnant. Uh, I mean, not going to lie when you're three months, not three months, when you're in your third trimester and you're waddling around trying to run to a stroke code, that's somewhat difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think having home call, that's something else um, to certainly look into when you're a medical student looking into your residency programs. And, and also when you're a resident looking into private practice or not private practice, but becoming an attending, uh, find out, uh, like I said, about the call structure and, and coverage, but also where are you taking call? So one thing you might not know uh, as a pre-med is that when you take call, it's not always like on Grey's Anatomy, you may be in the hospital on call, but you also may be taking call from home where you get woken up and uh, you may or may not have to go into the hospital. And I had some very late night calls at 4 a.m. and had to throw clothes on and run into the hospital and Ryan would hear me groan and give me a positive encouragement and roll over <laughs> and then roll over. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, I found that somewhat challenging and, and that's, you know, I think partly because the hospital where I am, it's, it's, you know, some, some places have sort of a team structure. And, and for me, it was, I, I was the neurologist on call and that was it. So it was just a lot of responsibility, uh, on my shoulders. I felt prepared from residency, but it was just a lot. So something else that, that, as we were preparing for this session, something else that you talked about was the lack of understanding how to get all of the resources that were right across the hall as an inpatient physician, the the social workers and everything else. Now, all of a sudden, you're separated from them. You, you don't have as easy access to those as a, as an outpatient. Talk about that for a second. Absolutely. So I would say, well, yeah, first let me explain. Uh, when I was a resident and a medical student, I found it, I will, I won't lie. I found it somewhat frustrating sometimes how many pages you'll get. (laughs) I would be paged nonstop and we all do as, as uh, residents and med students get paged too, but as residents, you get paged all the time. Now, uh, who was I getting paged by? Well, nurses, uh, case managers, physical therapists, uh, social workers. What you don't realize as a resident is those resources are so, they're gold. They're absolute gold. And it goes, goes back to teamwork. It does. Um, and, and you learn so much. And Ryan and I have talked about this on many different episodes, but you learn so much about the importance of a team. And so that stuck with me very much so. But what I didn't realize, I, I really, I would say I took for granted the fact that those resources were really at your fingertips. So for example, if I had a patient when I was in residency who uh, was had a stroke and was going to be discharged to a, a nursing facility, 
if I needed help from the case manager, or let's say the patient was going home and I needed to to obtain resources for that patient, it's just a phone call away. It's right there. There, I can walk over to their desk and get their help. You're typically rounding with them oh, in the yeah. morning. I mean, that's it's sort of your your force to work with them, mm-hmm. which is great because I mean, you can't do anything these days in inpatient work without yeah. the help of these folks. Now, fast forward to when I'm in practice, I've had. Uh, a series of patients come along who have needed resources big time as as outpatients, whether that's visiting nurse care, whether that's physical. I mean, physical therapy is a little bit uh, easier to obtain because we have a lot of uh, physical therapists in the area. But uh, home health care and uh, basically just just case management. I mean, yeah. people to help coordinate everything. So so the one thing that kind of popped into my mind as we kind of tie this to what medical students, what residents, and even pre-med students can can start thinking about here is when you are a resident or when you are a medical student, start asking those questions of the case managers that you're interacting with every day and say, hey, you know what? Pull them aside when, when you're done with all of your other duties and say, next year I'm going to be in a private practice. Who should Who should I be thinking about calling for a patient like this as an outpatient and and have them kind of walk you down that path. They they might have all the numbers like oh you call this person and that person and and then you're golden. Right? Because when you try when you're trying to do that legwork real time in the office, it's very difficult. It can be very challenging. And the other thing is that some physicians may you may start practicing in the middle of a very rural area without a lot of resources. Uh, you may be practicing in a very saturated area, but still not know where those resources are. And I found that challenging. And and thank goodness for primary care physicians. As a specialist or as a consultant, I can go back to the primary care physician and say, look, I really need your help with this. And they're often very happy and willing to help. Um, but it would be so nice if if I had known some of those things beforehand to just, just sort of have that resource at my fingertips. Um, I really, so one other thing for pre-medical students out there, if you are shadowing with a physician at a practice or um, in an academic center, look and see what they have available. And so and take notes on that and keep that in your mind because as you then go through medical school and then you go through your residency and maybe you are someone who does want to do family practice or outpatient practice, but uh, it would be great if you still had that in your mind knowing what are these resources that I want to see and, and what is available at this practice that I'm interviewing at that I might want to join. Yep. Perfect. So... We talked about some good. We talked about some bad. Let's talk about if if we could rewind back as a pre-med, back as a medical student, what sort of skills that you wish you had learned earlier that you're trying to play catch up with now? Billing. Billing. <laughs> yeah. We wish they would teach us billing in medical school. They don't teach you a lot of things in medical school. So they don't... Well, another one just came to mind, which is interesting, but um, they don't teach about how to bill and as a resident I remember being in clinic and you sort of you circle a code and then you just move on but it's much different as as an attending when you're actually uh, you're actually um, charging the insurance company or you're charging the patient the patient's insurance is getting billed and you have to select what are the different things I'm seeing this patient for and what are the uh, what is the appropriate 
sort of level of um, of care that you're providing. So there are all these different levels of care. And, and you can't just sort of pick one. I mean, in residency, it was almost sort of like, well, I'll just pick one because somebody's looking out for you. You cannot do that if you just sort of pick and... I mean, there's, there's lots of criteria yeah. that each level has to meet. And, yeah, and you can be accused of fraud if you're not careful. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, I mean, you just, so anyway, I mean, not to be tongue in cheek about it, really, seriously, if you can find out, I mean, a friend of mine during his fellowship really learned how to bill and that was so, was so helpful to him. And now he's about to start working um, as an attending for the first time. And he's going to be so far ahead of the pack, you know, and just, and it's not even about that. It's not about being um, you know, ahead of your peers. It's about just having your day be easier because billing is, is a major thing that you need to understand. Yeah. So billing, what else did I wish I had known? I think, um, you know, we talked about uh, being able to really know who your team is once you're in, in the outpatient uh, setting. I have a wonderful team who I work with every day at the practice with, um, I have um, a wonderful NP I work with and other physicians and um, medical assistants and receptionists and an office manager. I mean, we have a great team, but uh, I think, again, being able to really have your, your team in place and, and know how to create your team is the key point when you're in outpatient um, mm-hmm. would be great. Okay. And, and to end efficiency. I mean, one of the things that uh, we're always working on at, at every level of our training is efficiency, but that, that gets ramped up a little bit, I think, when you're in attending because uh, you go from having three patients in clinic to maybe 20 patients in clinic. Yeah. And I remember specifically when you first started working that I kept mentioning, don't worry, you'll get better. Don't worry, you'll get better. And you got mad at me. I did. Do you remember what you said to me? I said, I've been doing this for four years already and I should know. Yeah, yeah. I was full of it. No, I mean, I, I think so I, I was, I was I, frustrated. I was, I was talking about how you would become more efficient in seeing the patients and writing your notes. And you came back to me with, I've been doing this for four years. I obviously know what I'm doing. Oh, man, I sound <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, no one's perfect. <laughs> I'm, I'm the older, wiser one here. Okay. I was trying to give you some motivation that you you will get more practiced more and more practice and and more efficient yeah there's a reason we call it practicing medicine i mean no joke i i i was absolutely wrong i had been a physician for four years, but I was knee deep i mean very heavily involved in seeing inpatients and acute care and uh I had had certainly some outpatient care throughout my residency, but I was not seeing. 20 outpatients a day or 20 or 10 to 20 outpatients a day. And so it was a different kind of work. And Ryan is absolutely right. It, it just took a matter of time and, and getting those algorithms down and getting comfortable and, and getting more efficient. And he's absolutely right. Not only did I become more efficient in seeing patients, but also getting my work done in terms of, you know, the administrative part and, and the notes. So yeah. he, he's right. So there's a, a, a new tool that you downloaded for your computer at work. I did. I'm so excited. I used it today again. <laughs> I hope you're using it every day. I do. <laughs> so what's it called? It's called Breevy. B-R-E-E-V-Y. Yeah. So Breevy is a a text expander type tool. I, on my, I'm a Mac guy, and I use the the program. It's called Text Expander, and it's something that I've tried to get Allison to use for a while now. 
it's it's to allow her to be more efficient in writing her notes. Right. And I was dictating for a while, which is something that a lot of you may do um, when you're medical students to help um, your residents. And then when you're residents uh, and certainly when you're out in practice, a lot of uh, physicians I know just just dictate. And I did dictate, mm-hmm. but I was using Dragon software. And uh, when I came back from maternity leave, my well, someone borrowed my headphones in quotes, borrowed. <laughs> I got them back. But in addition, my software broke. Yeah. But it goes it goes back to looking at what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and trying to figure out how you can streamline it. And so for you, it was understanding that, hey, I type the same thing every time pretty much when I diagnose somebody with Alzheimer's. So let me make this a little snippet. And when I have a new diagnosis of Alzheimer's, I'll open up Brevi and type whatever, and then my whole paragraph will spit out. Absolutely. So... And, and one other thing, because dictating, you know, in some ways, if you're not going to be typing, I mean, a lot of people heavily rely on dictation and medical transcriptionists. And uh, I remember as, a, as a, an intern, my dictations were terrible. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. They were horrible because I just didn't know. I, I wasn't practiced at it. And so um, I think, uh, I don't know, hopefully when people read them later, they weren't like, I mean, I'm sure they were fine, but I felt like they were just so all over the place. So one thing I would say is, um, if you're shadowing, when you're shadowing, pay attention and see if, if the physician in the office um, or um, post, you know, in post-op in the OR uh, dictates the note right then and there, listen and watch how they do it to just get an idea of how, how efficient can you be? Um, how, can you, how can you get this done in a really uh, efficient but also um, helpful way? And then when you're a medical student, uh, you can work on it that much more. And certainly by the time you're a resident, so that by the time you're out in practice, you might be just the dictating king or queen. I'm not kidding. I mean, it really is valuable to spend time learning how to do this when when you're in your training. Definitely. All right. So we've talked about the good, the bad, some skills we wish we had. Now that you're out in practice, you're an attending physician, you're a doctor, back nine years ago, is it nine years already? Four... Five, yeah, four years well, of med when school. We, when we graduated, yeah. When, when you started, started med school mm-hmm. nine years ago, what what can you tell your former self to to kind of help on that path to where you are now? What can I tell my younger self? Yeah. Well, and I might even go as far back as like AP Bio in high school, and what could I tell that self? Yeah. And I think I would say I would I would tell myself three things. Number one, I would say uh, stay focused as best you can because it's a very long journey. Nine years doesn't sound like that long, but uh, just because of how much has happened in the last nine years, but but it might sound kind of long in, in some ways. Uh, and, and either way, I mean, no, for sure, as a pre-medical student, that's a long journey. And then as a med student and then as a resident, it's a lot. It's a lot of years. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And I think it's so important to stay focused because when I dreamed of being a doctor years and years ago, I, I, I can't, I mean, I, I really do feel very strongly that, that's, that when I go to work every day, this is what I wanted to do. I I feel fulfilled in that way. And I feel very blessed and very lucky, um, that, I mean, yes, there are lots of challenges to being a physician in this day, day and age, but I feel that this is what I really always dreamed of doing. And it's very exciting to go to work every day and, and, and be enjoying what you're doing and in, in, in your practice of medicine. So stay focused through all of the hurdles and all of the, the craziness and, and all of the, the hard work and, and sleepless nights. 
What else would I say? I would say stay flexible because their life will throw you lots of curveballs, but but so will medical school and, and residency. And I think your your interests can change drastically from from one year to another, from one rotation to another. And you want to just keep your eye on the ball and but but also be willing, allow yourself to be flexible because you may start medical school or you may uh, finish high school and go to college knowing deep down in your soul that you want to be a cardiac surgeon. And then you might get to third or fourth year of medical school and be really freaked out because you've realized that now you want to be an OBGYN and that's okay. Um, maybe you, you wanted to be in a, a rural place, the only physician within miles, and now you want to be right in a, a big academic center in, in the middle of, of New York or something. The point is, allow yourself the flexibility to, to change your mind along the way, because that's part of the beauty of having an MD or a DO. You can do a lot with your degree. Uh, and finally, I would say, stay passionate. Um, I think that because there are a lot of challenges to becoming and maintaining your practice of medicine, being a physician these days, it's so important to just keep that passion, to not let yourself get bogged down by people who are cynical, people who, and at every stage of the journey, um, people who are trying to kind of drag you down into the muck, if you will, and uh, to just just know that this is what you want to do and and just stick with it and and just try as best you can to keep fueling that passion because that is what will keep you uh, keep you going really I mean we've Ryan and I have been through a lot in the last nine years and uh, as we've talked about I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and Sjogren's I mean some lovely autoimmune conditions and and that's made life harder but you know what it's it's certainly not going to stop me and I've just tried to to continue being as passionate as I can be about being the best doctor I can be and about providing good care to the patients I see and um, helping my community and I think that um, it's really important to just keep fueling that passion, that, that desire to care for others, to, to be the best uh, physician that you can be, because it will get you through those more difficult times. Well said. So hopefully I didn't bore you all. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> or put you to sleep. But no, I mean, I, I think um, that's, the, that's what I would say to my younger self, and hopefully that uh, makes uh, or is helpful to you. Good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your experiences for through your first year of being an attending. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on tonight. For letting, letting me out. For, for letting you on. <laughs> letting me on. <laughs> letting you on the show. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up this session of the Medical School HQ podcast, please remember that you can continue this conversation at the dedicated show notes page for this episode at medicalschoolhq.net slash nine two, as in session 92. We also want to remind you that we are the partner podcast for Pre-Med Life magazine. Their newest issue is now live. Their digital issue is now live at premedlife.com. The, the, the big headline for this issue is the best medical schools for the entrepreneurial student, which is kind of interesting. They actually have one of our articles Part of our partnership is they're turning some of our podcasts into articles, and the, uh, the, that first one went live uh, last week, I think. The eight pieces of information every pre-med should know. That was a good episode. I, I think so. I remember that one. So premedlife.com, go check them out. 
say hello for us. Something else that we want to remind you about is that we're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, really. Allison, oh, Allison's geez. kind of on Twitter, but I like Twitter. Actually, the last time I tweeted was like about, <laughs> about a television show. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll ignore Allison for this, uh, this time. Sorry. So I am at Medical School HQ. Twitter was in one of the top 10 for my pre-med resources, resources that every pre-med student should be using. I think it's a great learning tool. Yes, it's social media. Yes, you can waste hours of your day on it, but... If you use it properly, it's a great tool to learn and to connect with people. So I don't think they had Twitter when we were in med school. Twitter came out around 2005, 2006. So I guess they did, but yeah. not as pre-meds. Not as pre-meds, no. Interesting. And I think that's it. So back to our 100th episode. If you have any, if you want to share your story, email us. I am ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. Allison at medicalschoolhq.net, or you can contact us through our contact page, medicalschoolhq.net slash contact. I absolutely do respond to emails. I'm very good with email. Yes, you are. I just don't tweet. She's, she's not a tweeter. That's all right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you learned a lot that hopefully you can take with you as you progress on your journey so that when you are an attending like Allison is now, that your life will be easier. Everything we do here is to make your path, make your life, make your job, make make everything a little bit easier and so you're happier and More and fulfilled. in the end your patients are are better treated. So Absolutely. So with that said, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. <laughs>